Let's turn in our Bibles together to Matthew chapter 24. And in just a moment, I'm going to read verses 29 to 35. So this is Matthew 24, 29 to 35. Before I read the passage of Scripture, I think it will be helpful for all of us, hopefully, to be refreshed and reminded of Daniel chapter 6, Daniel 7. We were rained out last week. We couldn't meet outside, and we uh, instead encourage you to do some home worship. If you still didn't go through that guide, it's probably still available in your email inbox or trash or something, or if you want me to send it again, it's an excellent, helpful guide to help you think about the importance of Daniel, the book of Daniel, so that you will hopefully better understand Matthew 24. So to refresh our memories, Matthew 6 and 7, and this is kind of the fun part where I can recap a a very riveting story. So kids, maybe you've heard this story before. Daniel in the lion's den. It's Daniel chapter 6. Daniel's a prophet of God. He has the ability to know visions and dreams and, and has dreams himself about what God's doing in the world. And we see that clearly in chapters 1 and 2. And he's faithful. He's a worshiper of God. And there's nothing that will deter him from being obedient and entrusting God's laws and, and worshiping the one true God of the Bible. And so this is what we see happen in chapter 6. King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of the Babylonian I- empire. And he's ruling over all. And he likes Daniel a lot because Daniel is blessed by God. But there are people that are jealous of Daniel. And there's this theme that runs through a lot of our lives and the Bible. And it's that many times when we choose to follow God and and maybe there's blessing in our lives, there can be people that don't like us and they want to persecute us. They want to challenge us or take us down. And they, they wanted to do this with Daniel. So what they did was played a trick on the king. They tricked the king to say, We know that Daniel's faithful to God. We know that Daniel always prays to his God. So if we convince the king to put to death anyone that prays to anyone else other than King Nebuchadnezzar, well, then we'll get Daniel in big trouble. And sure enough, it worked. The king didn't realize what these other servants were doing. He made a decree in Babylon and said, if anybody bows down and prays to anybody other than me, I will put them to sure death and throw them in a den of lions. And so sure enough, the servants go, they watch, what's Daniel going to do? He's faithful. He worships God. He chooses to obey God and he prays. That's what he does. He prays like he normally would have. And because of that, he was thrown into a den of lions and the king was like, no, I had no idea I was getting tricked. And so the path, the storyline of Daniel's story is that to be faithful, to worship God led to certain death. It led to a path of persecution and ultimately to a pit But God, in his rich mercy, spared Daniel's life. The king couldn't sleep all night. He was wondering, oh no, God, maybe Daniel's God will save him. As soon as the next day came up, he he went and ran to the lion's den. He looked in and said, Daniel, are you still there? And Daniel said, yep, I'm still here. My God saved me. 
And so the king decided right then and there to raise Daniel up out of the lion's den and appoint him and his God as ruler over the land and Daniel's sake, not like the king, but as, as the right-hand man to the king of Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's now given a place of honor. So he went from worshiping God down to the pit and then exalted and vindicated for his right choice of praying and worshiping. And in this way, the chapter of, of Daniel ends with King Nebuchadnezzar declaring a new decree over the whole land that Daniel's God should be worshipped by all tribes, nations, tongues, and peoples. And many people just stop there with the story in Daniel chapter 6. They don't realize that Daniel 7 is also related to Daniel 6. The two stories are meant to work together to commentary and explain what happened in the Daniel story. So in Daniel 6, you had an example in history of a man choosing faithfulness and that he was then led down to the grave, but then risen and exalted and vindicated and to the right hand of the king. And all peoples would worship this God of Daniel. Well, in Daniel chapter 7, he has a dream and a vision. And in the pit, in, in the sea of chaos that represents evil, four different kingdoms are these monsters with these crazy heads of lion and leopard and bear. And, and finally, the last one's the worst of them all. And these beasts represent just the horrible, evil empires of the earth, like Babylon in Daniel's day, like you fill in the blank here in our world today. And the empires of this world are, are doing their worst and they're persecuting Christians. And those of us who choose to be faithful, we end up finding not the greatest end of our worship. We end up in death or some sort of horrible circumstances like Daniel or something. And so in Daniel 7, the way this story goes is that Daniel's vision sees all these chaos monsters like Babylon but that eventually they're defeated by one who is like a son of man who rises up to the right hand in clouds and he goes from earth to heaven, son of man, a human figure. And then throughout Daniel 7, we see that he's given this rule and reign over all the peoples of the earth and everybody worships him just like the way Daniel 6 ended. And then Daniel 7 goes on to explain that this son of man represents the nation of Israel. There's this interesting kind of juxtaposition, this comparison between an individual who represents the whole. And so it's not just one person, it's actually the whole group of people, the nation and the people of Israel. And that's the important background before we open Matthew 24. The Jews in Jesus' day, the context before you read the New Testament is that one of the most important pictures is that people thought if we're faithful to God, if we worship him rightly, then we will be blessed. And even when things get bad for us, God will vindicate us and raise us up. And there'll be one who's like a son of man, a human figure. And the, the nation and people of Israel will be vindicated at the right hand of the Father. And this is the path. This is the path of Daniel. And it's the path that's fulfilled by Jesus. And my question to you right from the start is, is this going to be your path? Are you going to be one that follows this trajectory in life? Before I even read the text, if I had to give you that one big idea for today's message is, 
choose to trust Jesus's words by following Jesus's path. Choose today to trust him, his words. They are true. So follow his path of righteous living, following his example. Follow his path of perseverance in the midst of suffering, even to the point of death, because you know that you will be vindicated, you will be exalted, you will be raised. Jesus' path is one of complete and total allegiance to God, even though that leads to suffering, persecution, and death in this world. And it always does, friends. Complete and total allegiance to God means that you will be at odds with the other allegiances of this world. You will create friction. You will create controversy within your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighborhood. Worship of God to the uttermost in this way, the way Jesus did it at least, leads to suffering, persecution, and ultimately death. Even for doing what is good and right. But you can trust Jesus' words. Because his path was one of death and resurrection. Death and exaltation. Death and vindication. Let's read the texts together. Starting in verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Well, verse 29 is where our passage starts, and verse 29 is where many of you might think, this is where my following your teaching ends, Pastor Phil. All along, you've been saying Matthew 24 is first and foremost about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and not the end of the world. But as I read verse 29, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. That sounds like the end of the world to me. So what do you have to say about that? What about verse 29? And this is oftentimes the one that most people that are tracking up to this point thinking, okay, I see the argument for the destruction of the temple because, remember, verses 1 and 2, that's the context of the chapter. Verse 3 is the question the disciples are asking. When will these things take place? These things he's talking about in verse 3, if you look at your text, these things refers back to verse 2. When every stone of the temple will be demolished and come undone. And so if you're tracking so far, you're like, but wait, it seems like Jesus is talking about something bigger, more cosmic and greater. What do we think about verse 29? My answer to you, in short, is verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. All these things I believe he's referring to, verses 4 to 34. 
All these things include the sun darkened, the moon darkened, the stars falling from the sky. In other words, if you think Matthew 24 is ultimately and first and foremost about the end of the world, what do you do with verse 34? I'll tell you what you do with verse 34 if you think Matthew 24 is the end of the world. You conclude that Jesus isn't really saying this generation. You're saying he must mean something else. This is what every Bible teacher and commentator ever does with Matthew 24 verse 34 when saying this is the end of the world. See, the sun darkens, the moon darkens, the stars fall from the sky. Well, generation doesn't mean generation here. It's the only way to make sense of it. You have to suggest that Jesus is talking about some different kind of generation other than 40 literal years, which is what a generation would have been. And sure enough, we know that the temple was destroyed within 40 years of Jesus saying these words. So if you notice what I'm doing, I'm putting each of you in a dilemma here. You can go one route or the other. You can track along with the teaching I've been doing, which is fine. Or you can have the agree to disagree moment, which is also fine. We've tried to say this every week. We can be a church. We can be brothers and sisters. We can love each other and agree to disagree on Matthew 24. This is not the end all be all. But I think it would be helpful for all of us to at least consider that maybe verse 29 is not saying what you think it's saying. And so you have the option of either saying, well, generation doesn't mean what we think it means. Or you can think that maybe verse 29 isn't what we think it means, at least as you read it on its literal surface. So then what might it mean? Why did I read Isaiah 13? Because prophets in Isaiah chapter 13, like Isaiah, talk about the end of an empire like it's the end of the world. Ezekiel talks this way, Joel talks this way, and I gave you one example, and in fact, it was probably the closest example because if you saw in Isaiah 13, verse 10, it was almost word for word quote from Matthew 24, or the other way around, Matthew 24, Jesus' words are quoting almost word for word Isaiah 13. So here's your option. You can say generation doesn't mean 40 years, like in a literal 40 years, and it's a bigger span of time, and it doesn't mean that. Or you can say, I have biblical warrant from the Old Testament of a repeated pattern of language, and that if prophets talk this way and Jesus is putting on his prophet hat, which he really seems to be doing here, then it would make sense that he is talking extreme cosmic metaphorical language from Isaiah or Ezekiel about the destruction of Babylon when God's going to bring judgment that feels like the end of the world. So that's my answer to verse 29. I would suggest and encourage each of you to consider Ezekiel's lament over Egypt as another example. He says that the Lord says the that the Lord covers the heavens and darkens the stars. He will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. Ezekiel 32, 7 and 8. You should also realize that starting in Genesis chapter 1, there is this theme that the stars and the moons and those, the celestial beings in the sky, they, they rule, they govern, and they're metaphors for kingdoms and kings. I wish I could have more time to help unpack that point, but from the first page of the Bible, you need to realize that there is ruling, governing language as metaphorical comments about the stars and the sun and the moon. And this is also part of the reason why you look at all of the flags in our modern day. Nationalities, if we had just like this big banner of all the 
United Nations flags, how many of them would have stars and moons and celestial kind of beings? Because they represent kingdoms. This has been a, a tradition for ages. And this is what the prophets are talking about. When Babylon fell, a world would collapse. So why, why should Jesus talk this way? Some of you might be thinking, I just wish sometimes Jesus would just say it straight. If he says that this is the collapse of the temple, then he should have just said, the collapse of the temple will feel like the end of the world. That would just be a lot more simple and straightforward. But to use this kind of language not only puts his prophet hat on in that way, but it's using Jewish imagery that helps bring out its full significance. Poetry and metaphor does that in a way that just saying something straightforward can't do. Friday was September 11th's 19th anniversary. Did you read any news headlines on Friday? Did you reminisce and remember that tragic day in our country's history? One of the things I decided to do, just because I was curious, is look back at all of the old headlines that came out that very first day on September 12th, 2001. Would you be surprised if I told you that cosmic, end-of-the-world kind of language, the United States was utterly shaken on September 11th, 2001? Why do we do that today? The same reason that people would do it in Jewish apocalyptic literature, the same reason Jesus does in his day. The prophetic imagery enables us as hearers and readers to understand that what is being destroyed is not just a building. Did anybody feel that way September 11th? Oh, some buildings went down. That's too bad. Or did the news headlines go, this is war. This is bigger than just a building that fell down. And in the same way, Jesus wants you to understand the comparable significance of the power of this structure that is the temple and all that it symbolizes as the place where heaven and earth meet. It is the center of the universe if you're a Jewish person. And probably one of the biggest reasons why we read Matthew 24 as the end of the world and not the destruction of the temple is because you fail to realize the significance and the weight of the heaven and earth reality of the center of the universe being the Jerusalem temple. And so this is, I think, further confirmed as we keep reading in our text in Matthew 24, starting in verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Did I refresh your memories well enough? The coming of the Son of Man on clouds with great power, gathering together all the peoples of the earth to worship him. Sound familiar? One of the most important Old Testament passages for a Jew in Jesus' day, Daniel chapter 7. He's referencing Isaiah in verse 29. He's referencing Daniel 7 and verse 30. In one sense, every single verse we could go on all day, and I'm sure you'd love it. And, and we could see the various ways that he continues to refer to Old Testament texts. But these are the two big ones, the Isaiah passage and the Daniel one. And the coming of the Son on Man here does not refer to the second coming of Jesus at the end of the world. At least I don't think so. You can agree to disagree. But I want to emphatically state this is Daniel 7 being quoted and applied by Jesus. It is not a human figure traveling down toward the earth on clouds. 
It is not referring to a rapture. It is not referring to end times teaching that many Christians believe, especially in America and in the last hundred years. Let's put those qualifiers on that teaching. In America and in the last hundred years. Read church history and visit Christians outside of America. They don't talk the way many Christians in America and in the last hundred years talk about these passages of scripture. This is a unique time and place that we live in where people think these texts are talking about Jesus returning from heaven to earth, the second coming of Jesus. I believe that will happen one day. Our church affirms that, but that's not what Matthew 24 is talking about here. The coming of the Son of Man is the, the movement up. It's the perspective of Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 from the heavenly throne of the Ancient of Days. And so the coming is the man that comes from earth to heaven to be seated at the right hand of the Father. And if you want to jot this down, Matthew has not talked this way just here in Matthew 24. You can go back and listen to Phil's sermons in Matthew 16, Matthew 10. He uses the same reference. And in both places, I said, here, Jesus is talking and Matthew is talking about Daniel 7 and the coming of Jesus into heaven in his enthronement or his ascension. And we will see it yet again in Matthew 26 when Jesus is on trial and he tells Pilate, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. All throughout Matthew, when this is referenced in Matthew 10, Matthew 16, Matthew 24, Matthew 26, the coming of the Son of Man is a coming not to earth, but a coming to God in heaven so that he will be praised and worshipped by all the peoples from all the corners of the earth. And therefore, this is enthronement texts about the ascension of Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father as a vindication over his righteous suffering. The one righteous Jew, the one man who actually lived the perfect life that you and I and every Jew before him did not live, perfectly fulfilled the law and all of its requirements. And how did the Jewish people treat him? The same way those servants of King Nebuchadnezzar treated Daniel, wanted to put him to death. And so Jesus died on a cross bearing the weight of God's wrath and judgment, not just for the Jewish people, but for all the tribes, tongues, and languages of the world. And he was vindicated three days later when he rose again from the dead and then 40 days later ascended to heaven for where he now stands and sits, better yet sits, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father. Too often Christians in today's day are obsessed either with what Jesus has done in the past, which is a good thing to be obsessed with, and what he will do in the future, which is also a good thing for us to be, well, we'll just go without those, a good thing for us to be obsessed with. But very few of us consider what Jesus is doing right now, where he is right now. And Jesus is at the Father's right hand, vindicated, righteously, approved as the one servant over heaven and earth. So our text in verse 30 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The mourning that's being referred to here is that, it's a quote again from the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 10, and it's that 
When they reject the Messiah, they would then, when it's too late, realize, oh no, what did we just do? So here's, here's the important thing about this passage. You can read verse 30 as either there will be a sign or you can read it as when the Son of Man is in heaven, that is the sign. And I would suggest we should read when the Son of Man is in heaven at the right hand of the Father, that's the sign when everything will be vindicated and Jesus is proven, his words are true, proven true. And so what we need to see in verse 30 then is that the morning here is the people of Israel realizing it when it's too late, when they see the Son of Man coming on the power and glory. It's when the temple is destroyed and they realize, oh no, this is exactly what Jesus predicted would happen within 40 years and it came true. His words must be right. And by that point, all of those who rejected Jesus and killed him, it's a little too late. Thank you, Phil. So moving on now to verse 31, he will then send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from all the four winds from one end of the earth, from one end of heaven to the other. And this, I believe, is just a reference to the spread of the gospel to all the nations where Jesus will be worshiped as the one true ultimate king and ruler. Angels here could be actual angels like spiritual beings. It could also be the same word for messenger. And either way, it does not make much of a difference. It's a reference to Jesus's worship by all peoples of all tribes, tongues, and languages, which then suggests maybe if you're going to worship Jesus, you might have core at the deep of, at the deep of your core and heart, a love for and a desire to see all nations and peoples worshiped. And so at Embassy Church, one of the things that we want to see time and time again is a love for and a prayer for supported workers, missionaries, those that are working around the world. And this is why we prayed for those that we did in our pastoral prayer earlier. And so Embassy Church, let's remember that Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and he deserves all glory and power and praise from every tribe, tongue, and language. He is not some local tribal deity in Jerusalem or just some white American kind of religious movement. This is for every ethnicity, race, and people of all different stripes and places. And so I want to make sure we understand that the calling here is for us to follow the path of Jesus, even when that path leads us to other places around the world where they don't tolerate Christians and they persecute them and even put us to death. Remember the words of Jesus. You'll be vindicated just like he was. Follow his path and you will see that you too will be raised and exalted like he was. The last part of our text is verses 32 through 35. From the fig tree we learn its lesson. I don't think this is a reference back to when Jesus cursed the fig tree. I think he's just talking metaphorically about, hey, when you look at the fig tree, when the branches start to become tender, then you start to realize, oh, summer is near. And in the same way, when you see these things happen, namely the destruction of the temple, then you know that the he is, is, is more, I think, translated it. It is near. The end of the age is near. It's at the very door. It's a phrase like it's knocking at the door. It's right around the corner. The end of the age, the question they asked, go back to verse three again. This is all about answering the question, when will these things take place? When will be the end of the age? When will be the coming of the son of man when he will be vindicated at the right hand of the father? That's verse three. Jesus is answering, you will know. These things will take place. When you see the destruction of the temple, you know it's right around the corner, the knocking at the door. Truly I say to you, all these things will take place and they will not pass away until they all do. 
And that's him kind of doubling down. That word truly is the word that we have for amen. When we say amen, that's true. I agree with that. And Jesus is saying, you need to agree with this. My words are true. They will come to pass. And notice the way he gives ultimate significance to his words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And some of you might think, okay, but here again seems like another passage that refers to the end of the world. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. There's two simple ways to read this in light of all that we've said so far. The first would just be, as if heaven and earth could pass away, then my words would pass away. And heaven and earth is not passing away. That's one way to read it. But the preferred way, I think, would be heaven and earth will pass away because heaven and earth is the temple. The temple is the place where heaven meets earth. This is from Genesis 1 all the way through the Old Testament. This is Jewish theology at its most basic fundamental thing. It's like saying, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. Do you believe that God exists as three persons? Father, Son, and Spirit? But there's one God? Yeah, that's kind of basic. Yeah, I, I get that. I believe that. In the same way, a basic fundamental truth of the Jewish people was that the temple embodied heaven on earth. And therefore, heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says, in this generation, within 40 years. And heaven and earth did pass away. The temple was destroyed. Every stone was undone. And Jesus said, trust me, my words will not pass away. My words will come true. Vindication of the Son of Man will happen. Therefore, I encourage all of you, regardless of where you're at and what suffering, what you're looking around the corner, maybe even death itself, one very important job for me as a pastor is to prepare all of you for death. It's coming. It's devastating. How about the death when it seems like all they did was good things and they seemed righteous and they worshiped God and they prayed and we prayed and prayed for it to be healed and God didn't come and death came. What do you do in that moment? What do you do when death knocks on the door? Destruction comes and judgment from our sin comes and death. You trust Jesus' words in the same way that the Son of Man was vindicated to the right hand of the Father so you too will be a part of Jesus' people. This takes us back to Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man is not just one individual. It's one individual who represents all those who worship and follow him. Meaning, it's you too. If you would trust his words. If you would believe him. Believe him afresh today, my friends. May this lead us into the bread and the cup as we trust the words of Jesus that even when death is knocking on its door, heaven and earth could pass away. But Jesus' words will never pass away. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for this glorious good news that Jesus reigns. He rules. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there is only one name above all names that we should worship and give allegiance to. Even when that allegiance, as total as it is and should be, means our cross-carrying, suffering, persecution. When things get harder, the more we try and follow Jesus and the tests get more difficult. Father, I pray for perseverance for all those who are hearing this message. That The words of Jesus, in the same way that they, they came absolutely 100% true, that the temple and heaven and earth passed away and was destroyed, so too will your words 
that if we believe upon you and we trust in you, we too will be united with you and raised and exalted and part of that vindication that Daniel 7 was talking about. I pray, Father, for us to have hope today that regardless of what happens in the November election, no matter how bad it seems like, I don't know, maybe the end of the world is right around the corner here in the United States of America. The more rioting and, and looting and issues with racial injustice and police brutality and all of the drama that we're feeling with COVID continues to nag at us and we wonder, God, what are you doing? What is happening? Help us to trust your words and believe by faith that we should pursue your path live righteously and worship you no matter what's happening all around us. Give us that grace now in Jesus' name. Amen.